0: EU Medieval Radio, Past Perfect, the talk show about medieval and early modern culture. Hello and welcome to the RevDem conversation in the History of Democracy section. I'm Karen Culver and today it's my pleasure to host Martin Prack. Martin is a professor of Social and Economic History at the Department of History and Art History at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. He is an expert on medieval and early modern history, having authored and edited numerous publications on Dutch national history, comparative history of Europe and global history. His research work focuses on topics such as citizenship, institutions, cultural industries, guilds and human capital. In the past, Martin Brack has been a visiting scholar at various universities in France, Germany and the UK. He has chaired the Humanities Board of the Netherlands Organisation for Scientific Research, NWO, from 2014 to 16, and served as a member of the Governing Board of the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences until September 2020. His latest monograph is citizens without nations urban citizenship in europe and the world from 1000 to 1789 published by cambridge university press in 2018. martin welcome to revdem
1: thank you karen
0: let me start by asking you about citizenship in medieval and early modern europe the traditional view is that citizenship in this period was limited to a small percentage of the population who played an active role in government. You challenge this view and contend that citizenship went much deeper and wider into the population. In addition, you argue that active engagement with governance structures often went beyond those with formal citizenship status. Please, can you explain this further?
1: Uh, Yes, I'd love to. Um, So, as your question implies, there are two sides of this. Um, The one is the number of people who were holding formal citizenship or citizen status. And the other one is people who did not have that status, but still acted like citizens. So, let me say first a few words about formal citizen status. In medieval Europe, an institution emerged, slowly but surely, in which people were able to register their formal membership of an urban community and thus become citizens. How that process went is still the topic of research, but in each town and city of the period, before the French Revolution, you would find people with that formal status. Now, on the basis of some uh, famous examples, the assumption is usually made that the number of people holding that status was actually quite limited. The most famous example is Venice, where a small number of formal citizen families and then you have to think in the order of a 1,000 individuals, all males, were uh, separated by that status in a formal sense from the rest of the urban community that consisted of tens of thousands of uh, individuals, male and female. Now, I've found that when you look at Europe as a whole, Venice is a very atypical example. And that in many cities and towns across Europe, this formal citizen status was held by large numbers, in some places more than half the heads of households. So in Frankfurt, for example, in the late 18th century, around three quarters of households have a formal citizen as their head. And these could be both male and female. So uh, it very much varies across Europe what the percentage is, but I would claim that in most towns and cities, it was substantial, uh, close to half or even over half. Now, next to the people holding formal citizen status, you have an even larger group who might not have that formal status, but were still involved in all kinds of activities that sort of assumed that you were a citizen. So by practicing citizen activities these people could also be considered and in fact consider themselves as citizens. And a, a good example is the urban militias about which we're going to talk later. So here you have individuals who are called upon to help defend the local community in a military sense. And this was, of course, an onerous duty, and gradually the people who held formal citizen status were saying, wait a minute, other people are also benefiting from our activities as defenders of the local community, and we want them to also participate in this onerous duty. So they would start to recruit larger numbers of people based on a variety of criteria. And these people then became part of that civic community by acting like citizens, even though they might not always have the formal status. Yes. Um,
0: As a British citizen living in Hungary, that's exactly my status now.
1: Yeah. And so, so we now know there, that's a wonderful modern equivalent that in a lot of countries in Europe, you can participate in local elections after you've been a resident of the community for a certain number of years. Mm-hmm. So here you have it. You're not a formal citizen of that country, and still you participate in citizen activities.
0: Yes, that's very true. Um- in your recent book, you discuss the many varieties and activities of citizens and how the urban governance was managed. As we've discussed, these include electing public officers from among the citizens, but also consulting with local people about issues relevant to them and the towns the towns themselves having sometimes representation at regional or national level. But in your book, I was very aware that you very rarely use the word democracy. Can you explain why you do not call these forms of governance urban democracies?
1: Yes, there are um, two reasons why I don't. One of them is that usually in the period itself, people themselves refrain from using the word Democracy And the reason was that they considered democracy as a form of rule in which the mob was in charge. And this they did not like. Uh, so one of the lines in the sand that they very often draw is that citizenship is something for the propertyed classes. And the argument is that if you own property, for example, your own house, or you have your own business, you have a stake in the community. So if you don't have a stake in the community, your vote will be for sale. Only the stakeholders have their own original uh, interest in the affairs of the community. And therefore, they can think and judge independently on what is happening or should happen. The other reason why I'm reluctant to use the word democracy is because it's so connected to what you also might call modern democracy. So the point that I do make in my book is that modern democracy, as it was introduced by the French Revolution, was actually in many ways a step back from the situation that we find in many medieval and early modern towns, because under modern democracy, as it developed, at least during the early stages, only a very small number of people could actually vote. And there were very high wealth barriers for people to get the vote for precisely the reasons that I gave. But when you look at what was happening locally in, let's say, 17th or early Uh, 18th century um, uh, towns and cities, you could see that a fair number of people uh, were involved in running those local communities who would be denied the vote after uh, 1789, and who would only uh, regain it much later as the franchise was widened. In the meantime, those towns and cities lost a lot of their political autonomy after the French Revolution. So my point is that uh, if you think about democracy as a system in which a fair share of the population is participating in political processes, the argument could be made there was less democracy in the, uh, the early 19th century than there was in the 17th and 18th century, at least in urban communities.
0: Hmm, which initially seems quite counterintuitive, but I can see your argument that going yeah. from the urban to the national actually reduced the, the input from the citizens in yeah. the democratic practices.
1: Yeah, and so the, the point is the arguments that the French Revolution created more democracy is valid when you look at most uh, country-level situations, but it's no longer, precisely as you say, quite as valid when you factor in local governance structures.
0: Um, Thinking about the dichotomy, if you like, between the national and the urban, in medieval and early modern Europe, guilds were the professional associations and they were urban-based. The guilds represented, supported and controlled the merchants and the craftsmen. And in many places, as you show, guild membership was an important route for migrants to grain citizenship. This was probably good for the guilds because it meant that they had more wealth, more members, more power and influence. On the other hand, the guilds are often accused of being a closed shop and that no one could engage in business without the right guild membership how did the guilds manage this tension between promoting migration and restricting trade to their members
1: let me first start by saying that this criticism of the guilds as being closed shops was particularly raised and vocalized only in the second half of the 18th century so this is Uh, an issue that is much less in evidence in earlier centuries. And it had something to do with the emergence of a new liberal idea about how the world should work without all these so-called feudal privileges, which set certain groups apart from others. Now, one of the PR problems that the guilds had was their so-called monopoly. So in guild privileges, it is usually stated that only members of the guild are entitled to open a shop, a workplace, in which to practice the craft that is being regulated by the guild. This is the so-called guild monopoly. Now, a monopoly means that Uh, Access to that particular privilege was very limited, and there is no doubt that it was limited, there were barriers to entry. One of the things that we know, for example, is that relatively few women opened shops and workshops as compared to men. And at least in some cases, this is clearly due to the fact that gills placed barriers that women found more difficult to surmount than men. But in general, new research on gills has shown that a lot of these barriers were actually not as high as has been assumed. That it was quite possible for immigrants, for example, but even for females, To overcome these barriers and that the fact that relatively few guild members were females was probably as much due to the broader patriarchy of the era than to the specific rules of the guilds. You might argue guild rules were part of that much broader patriarchy that was so typical of medieval and early modern Europe. But it's difficult to blame the guilds specifically for that. And as you are saying, guilds were also facilitating the access of migrants into the community life of the urban settings in which they were active. Another argument um, that reduces the contrast between then and now is the fact that in most countries, Business is almost as organized as it was in early modern and medieval Europe, although it now happens on a voluntary basis. But on a voluntary basis, the great majority, and I mean over 90% of businesses, are members of organizations that when you start to look at them, remarkably look like guilds as they used to be. And it's quite difficult to not be a member of one of those guild organizations. And as a matter of fact, these modern uh, business associations also do quite the same things as guilds used to do. They worry about uh, apprenticeships, about training youth in that particular business. They lobby the government. They set rules for the business. In other words, Yes, the guilds have disappeared, but other institutions have taken their places. But one of the things that has changed is indeed that these organizations are much more uh, national nowadays than, the, than they used to be. They used to be much more local. And the reason is that rules for businesses are set nationally, whereas in the past, they used to be set locally. Now, there is a big debate about whether guilds were beneficial, yes or no. And I think there is something to be said against them. They were restrictive in some areas, but not in others. And one country where, let's say, guild-like structures have continued very much is Germany. And Germany is also praised for its extensive and high-quality apprenticeship system. A country that lost its guilds relatively easy in connection to apprenticeship is the UK. And the UK is criticized very often for the poor state of its apprenticeship system. So, well, this is one area where you can see that guilds were not only a negative influence on the economy, but could also be beneficial.
0: We mentioned earlier the urban militias, and in your book you quote Charles Tilly, the US sociologists, that war made the state, and the state made war. In relationship to urban militias, do you think this is also true of the towns, And what impact do you think the need for urban militias had on popular participation in the governance?
1: I think there are reasons to say that it was also true for towns that war made the town, the town made war. Well, this is less true, but in a way that is really different from what Tilly had in mind. So Tilly was thinking... About the military revolution of the 16th century, when warfare in Europe changed from what was essentially an amateur business into a much more professional business. Because in the 16th century, uh, states in Europe started to set up permanent armies and to raise money to pay for those armies. And the argument in Tilly's book is that both the permanent armies and the taxation necessary to pay for them together helped or became the sort of nucleus of the modern state as we know it. And in the course of time, the states expanded their business into education and healthcare and what have you. But that only came in the 19th century. So in the case of towns, the urban community to an important extent started in the high middle ages to protect urbanites against their vulnerability to warfare and other predatory activities and the general unsafety of the environment in which they live. And particularly merchants who ventured outside the town were extremely vulnerable to all kinds of predators who tried to capture either them as individuals or their merchandise. There were no rules and regulations governing interurban trade. To gain more control over their environment, they started to set up institutions that tried to reduce this insecurity. That is to say, laws and regulations uh, institutions to monitor those rules and regulations to prosecute people who disregarded the rules and regulations and so on and so forth this is how urban communities started but gradually they adopted other public services became more extensive and that is when you get these elaborate set of urban privileges Uh, plus citizenship as a member of the community. Now, one of the things that these urban communities then had to do was also to protect themselves militarily against the outside world, against predators, against other urban communities, but also feudal lords who wanted to conquer the communities and capture the wealth of the inhabitants. So you see from very early on, that part of citizenship is also military uh, service. One of the things that uh, urbanites had to worry about is that they could be called upon to help defend their community and also to serve their lord in military campaigns. So uh, well-to-do citizens start to train themselves in so-called militia guilds in the art of war. But they are a small group and they want to share this onerous duty with larger parts of the community, or they want to pay professionals to do it for them. So this is where the urban militia comes in. It's a duty that inhabitants of the community, whether they are citizens or not, have to take upon themselves uh, as part of their membership of the community. The next stage in this process is that these urban militias say wait a minute we are serving here as members of the community but we want to have a say in how the community is being run and of course being armed these urban militias could easily rebel or pressure the local government in uh, adopting policies that the militia thought would be valuable or in their interest and so on and so forth. So we see these forces of order also very often involved in urban rebellion. And this is one of the ways in which citizens can make their voices heard and pressure local governments uh, in a political sort of way.
0: Hmm. An interesting dichotomy.
1: Yes, but you see it happening all the time. Right? Like the guilds are forces of exclusion and inclusion. Here we see the militias being forces of order and forces of disorder.
0: In our conversation, you've mentioned several countries, the UK, England particularly, and Germany. And certainly from your book, where you demonstrate that a broad region from middle of England... To northern Italy had more citizens and were more likely to have governance structures that involved those citizens which sitting here in Budapest makes me wonder what was happening in the more eastern and the more western parts of Europe
1: well I I need to make a distinction here between two uh, elements of governance so locally we find, Citizenship, as I've been describing it, both as a formal status and as a set of practices, everywhere across Europe. In Budapest, but also in other Hungarian towns, in uh, Poland, uh, but also in France, in Spain, in Portugal, and so forth. So, this is a European wide phenomenon. What is different in the regions you mentioned? in Italy, in uh, medieval and early modern southern Germany, in the low countries, and from the 17th century, also increasingly in England, is the impact that urban citizenship had on national institutions. So in Renaissance Italy, it's quite simple because in city-states, the city and the state overlap. So in Florence, for example, the local institutions of citizenship, almost by definition, have an impact on state structures. In the medieval low countries, we see something similar because towns already held an important percentage of the population. Towns were represented in regional assemblies that helped to run that area already in the Middle Ages. So urban citizenship through its representation on a regional level had an impact well outside the confines of the town or city. Uh, In the low countries became particularly prominent with the establishment of the Dutch Republic in the late 16th century, because it was run through uh, a stage general that consisted of the representatives of uh, seven regional assemblies. And in those regional assemblies, towns were either a majority or at least held half of the votes. And so you can see here again, and particularly in the most important province, Holland, the regional assembly of Holland was dominated by the towns uh, of that province. Now in England, something similar is happening because there you have parliament and parliament consists of uh, individuals, members of parliament who are sent there by urban communities as well as rural regions. But from the Reformation onwards, the number of urban communities represented in parliament continues to increase To a point where, by 1689, well over half the seats of parliament are occupied by people who are elected by urban citizens. Now, this is, to some extent, hidden from view because the individuals they choose are very often members of the gentry or the aristocracy. But when you start looking at the people who send them there, they are very often urban citizens. And we know from a lot of local investigations that these urban electorates were not just deferential. No, they instructed their members of parliament, quite like today, on what they wanted from them. They told them, we want you to vote in favor of this. Or to put these rules and regulations before parliament and make sure that our interests are looked after so the composition of parliament doesn't quite give you a sense of how much local citizens were already involved in parliamentary activities and particularly after 1689 when parliament becomes the dominant force in english politics this of course is extremely important. And it is no coincidence that this coincides with England's rise to global dominance, its role in the global economy. And in that respect, Italy, the low countries, and England are indeed different from Hungary, Poland, and so on, where the nobility is the dominant force. And one of the reasons is that the levels of urbanization, are much lower in East Central Europe, and in France, and in Spain. But the other reason is that those areas don't have the sort of political structures where towns and cities make a big impact in representative assemblies.
0: Um, And that brings me very nicely onto my final question, which really looks at today. You're showing how urban governance impacted national governance and how much the state absorbed the democracy of the urban areas. Do you now see a similar process happening between the nation states and the supranational authorities, particularly the EU, and do you see any parallels with the way a number of European cities are requesting direct funding from the EU and thus wishing to circumvent the national states?
1: Well, okay, let me first uh, explain how I see what happened in uh, the decades around 1800, when a lot of these towns and cities lost their legal autonomy, if you will. Uh, because national authorities took over and uh, imposed themselves on these uh, local communities and by broadening the scope of their activities, reduced the scope of activities of local communities. We are in a different situation now with the EU because the EU is a federation of national states. So in a way, although the EU is taking over certain activities of national states, it cannot do that against those national governments. It cannot overrule those national governments. It always requires the approval of national governments. And so in a disingenuous way, many national governments distance themselves from the EU but everything the EU does has been approved by the majority or even all of those national governments. None of it happens when they don't want it. What I'm arguing in the book is not to go back all the way to medieval and early modern Europe, but to uh, restore some of the powers of local governments, precisely as you are saying, and to create a sort of three layer citizenship. So you already have in the EU what you might call a double citizenship. As an EU citizen, everyone is at one and the same time, a citizen of her or his country and a citizen of the EU as a whole. And this is very much what Brexit was about, that the British didn't want that. They wanted to be British only and deny EU citizens the possibility to enjoy some of the benefits of British citizenship because they were EU citizens. What I'm saying is that national citizenship, in a way, is also in a bit of a a, a problem state nowadays and that we don't need it perhaps in quite the way we needed it in the 19th and 20th century. It would be really interesting to have next to EU and national citizenship also forms of local citizenship in ways that really already exist but are not fully thought through and legally acknowledged. I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation how you have, or you mentioned it actually, already have certain citizen rights in Budapest, even though you're not a Hungarian national. And it is because you have been living there long enough to enjoy some of those rights. Well, what I'm arguing in my book is that looking back at that long, and I would argue overall quite successful, history of urban citizenship in Europe, we might seriously consider restoring some of that in the current double-layered model of citizenship and expand it to a three-layered model in which people would have local, national, and European citizenship, and those three do not necessarily all have to overlap. In quite the same way as is already developing on the ground, but not legally acknowledged.
0: Martin, thank you so much for all your thoughts and your ideas. It's been fascinating to talk to you. And for anyone who is as interested as I am, I would highly recommend them to pick up and read your book, Citizens Without Nations Urban Citizenship in Europe and the World. 1000 to 1789 it is a very very good read
1: thank you you very much i won't disagree with you on that (laughs) thank you for having me thank you